Okay, well, happy Sunday, friends. So glad uh, to see all your faces here this morning to worship our God and King in this place. And um, thanks so much, Josh and Becca and Jordan, uh, everyone who's helping to lead us in worship so far this morning. Um, As we have already gathered, it is our special Mission Sunday today, and so that is going to impact, as Becca was alluding to earlier, earlier, our, uh, our preaching moment, our sermon today. Uh, we're going to hit pause on the sermon series we've been doing through First Kings on the life of Elijah and do kind of like a, a one-off, a bit of a standalone message that'll hit on some of the themes of missions and God's intention and, and missions, uh, his mission in the world. And so that said, the text for us for today is going to be out of the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John, looking especially at chapter 12, verses 19 through 28a, is what I'll I'll read. A, just for fun, you know, just it's half the verse, so that's what that A is about. Uh, And so because we are just kind of parachuting in to John, uh, and we haven't been there, I just will orient us just for half a moment to the text here, Um, give us some context. Uh, As we come to John 12 in the scriptures, we are just over about halfway through the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus here at this point has entered Jerusalem, and it is actually his final week of life. It's interesting. In the Gospel of John, half of the Gospel of John is the final week of Jesus' life, what is referred to as his Passion Week, as Jesus is heading towards the cross. And so with that said, uh, Jesus is heading uh, to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples. And uh, everything, you know, Everything Jesus does all the time is very purposeful and intentional. But it seems like in this, this week, this Passion Week, that is just heightened. That everything Jesus is doing, he is he's literally a man on a mission. Right? So all that said, I'll stop there and I'll have us please stand as we're able for the reading of God's word. God's word in the scriptures, John 12, picking up in verse 19, says this. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This is God's word. Remain standing. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, you are good. Lord, we're grateful for the ways that you continue to communicate your truth to us. We know that that comes through the scriptures as your spirit connects the dots between our hearts and your word. Pray that you'd be doing that work now, in this time, for our benefit, our growth in Christ, we ask. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
Okay. So friends, um, well, as you can see uh, on the screen, boom, and also in your bulletins, I have titled the message today, Fruitful Mission. Uh, and as we think about what this fruitful mission is, especially as we see it in the life and ministry of Jesus and kind of focus on that text that we just read together, John 12, I basically have three headings that I'm going to use to kind of guide our thinking and kind of, you know, help us think about this theme and think through the scripture that we just read together. So three headings regarding Jesus's fruitful mission. What is that that I'm going to dive into here? And I'll just lay them out here from the start just so that we have them in our heads. So first and foremost, I want us to see and think about the curiosity of the Greeks in this passage and how that's related to Jesus's mission. Think about the clarity of Jesus regarding his mission. And also, uh, thirdly, the challenge to Jesus's disciples given by Jesus himself, which ultimately becomes a challenge to us as uh, Jesus's disciples as well. So those three, as, you, as you'll notice, you like, the, you know, like the repetition of the sea, the three points and the repetition. Yeah, you got to love it, right? Curiosity, clarity, and challenge. But here's the catch. One, one thing I want to throw at you, just kind of change it up a little bit. I actually, as I go through these, I want to start in the exact reverse order from how I just went through those, right? So just, just for fun, I want to flip it up, right? And I want to start with that bottom one, the challenge, and, and let, that, let uh, our thoughts on that kind of flow us into the rest of, uh, of the thoughts and the rest of the points there. Okay? You ready for this? All right. So we'll dive in. So first, what is this challenge to Jesus' disciples that we see in this text related to his, his mission? And in my own words, if I were going to kind of rephrase it, I'd say that the challenge that we see here in the text is the challenge of what I'm going to call release and surrender. The challenge of release and surrender. In the text, we see this especially, I think, in verses 25 and 26, where Jesus makes this uh, very, very stark, we might even say feels kind of abrasive statement. Where Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Verse 25. Going on from there, we see this uh, command to serve comes up twice in verse 26. Where Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And then again, if anyone serves me, a positive note, the Father will honor him. So we're, we're talking about the challenge here from Jesus to his disciples. So we see, serve me, serve me twice. And then, oh yeah, by the way, make sure that you hate your life in this world. Happy Mission Sunday, everyone. <laughs> Have a good week. Right? That's, that, no, right? That's not the end. That's not the point of what Jesus is saying. Jesus definitely is undoubtedly here using sharp language. It is pointed language. But as is always the case with Jesus, whenever Jesus uses pointed language, it's pointed so that he can make a point, right? It's intentional. It's hyperbolic on purpose. So it's kind of like 
again, if I were to kind of rephrase and put it in my own way of thinking and saying, it's kind of like Jesus is saying to his disciples here in this moment, hey, brothers, disciples, guys, make extra sure, double down sure that your affections and that your loyalties are over here towards these things and not down here on these things. Make sure that the things that you're loving are the things that are eternal, the things that are forever, right? Not these things that are temporary and that will fade and will fight, uh, ultimately fail and fall away. Jesus is calling and commanding his disciples to pursue the things that they can hold on to forever and to release and to surrender the things that are momentary. See, this is, uh, as we think about it for the disciples and how they would have received it in this moment, if we think about what the implication here is for us, this begins to meddle with our lives in a, in a pretty deep and personal way pretty quickly. The call to release, the call to surrender, to think about the things that are of the age to come and not be so wrapped up in this current age that we live in that is just so everywhere all-consuming. And this is part of the fruitful mission that Jesus is welcoming and calling his disciples into and to be a part of. It made me think this week, uh, just thinking of illustrations uh, about a young uh, American uh, missionary guy, uh, a guy you probably know and have heard the name of before uh, by the name of Jim Elliott. I think I have, yeah, have the quote up there. Jim Elliott, you guys know Jim, right? I mean, not personally. He's been gone for a while. But Jim, of course, is the um, husband of uh, another name that you probably know, Elizabeth Elliot, famous author and, and speaker. And if you know uh, Jim Elliot and you know the story here, you know that he and his wife Elizabeth were missionaries together, but only for a very brief period of time. And the reason they were only missionaries together for a brief period of time is because shortly after they entered the mission field, in, this, in their case, Ecuador, kind of going out to the tribes and to the indigenous peoples in Ecuador, Jim was killed by the very people they were seeking to share the gospel with and share Jesus with. Jim and uh, the four other guys that he was on, on this team with. And uh, it's it, fascinating because, as you know the story, I think, you know, there's been several books, you know, as Elizabeth has written uh, kind of her own memoirs and reflected, and I think they've made even one or maybe even two different movies kind of about Jim Elliott's life. It kind of came out that he was keeping a personal journal. And it was in this journal that we find this quote that is on the, on the slide behind me and that I'm sure many of us have heard before and I'll read it for us, thinking about the challenge and what is eternal and what lasts. Uh, Jim Elliott wrote in his journal, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Thinking about those words and especially how poignantly they tie to this man's own life and story, 
to me, I think, is a powerful illustration of what it looks like to release and to surrender things, even to the point of releasing and surrendering life itself. Clearly, that was not uh, Jim Elliott's, you know, plan for his life. And yet, his faithfulness to the call of ministry and to be engaged meaningfully in missionary work meant that he was going to go to a place that was dangerous, where something like this could have happened, and indeed it did. But again, if you know the story, the story doesn't just end with Jim's passing, and that's, that's it, right? We know that the story goes on from there, and that incredibly, even after her husband's death, even murder at the hands of some of these indigenous warriors, Elizabeth says, no, I'm going back. And that she goes back with a smaller team herself and begins to continue to share the name of Jesus with these people. And many of them come to know Jesus and believe in him. This is ultimately a story of fruitfulness, even though it involved also this profound surrender and this profound loss. But out of that loss and the surrender, the Lord brought life. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever clings to life and says, I can't let this go, loses it, Jesus says. Whoever hates his life, whoever releases it, whoever surrenders his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And you say, okay, well, this is still a really tall order, right? Even if we think about, okay, there's some eternal gain here, the the call to release, the call to surrender is still very, very challenging. And you might ask, why do this? Why surrender good things that we have here and now that I can just, I can cling on to and not let go of? Why release? Why surrender? Why, Why should we care about this mission thing at all? As we see in the text, I think the answer to this question is that we release and we surrender ourselves. We we release and we surrender even good things in our lives because of the clarity we have from Jesus that it is through his death that true life comes. It is through Jesus' sacrifice of himself the ultimate, Jesus' sacrifice is the ultimate release, the ultimate surrender, that true fruitfulness emerges, right? The true fruitfulness of eternal life gets given to all those who are his people as a gift through Jesus' own surrender and release of himself for us. I think this is exactly what Jesus is alluding to and talking about in verse 24, especially of the text, when Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, gospel, right? Good news. If it dies, it bears much fruit. In other words, Jesus' purpose, about which he has absolute clarity, it seems, is to be that grain of wheat. Jesus is the grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies so that through his death, through his sacrifice, through his giving of himself, much fruit might be born. 
Through Jesus' death comes life. And, you know, again, if we're new to the gospel, if we're new to the Bible, we might say, how so? Why, Brian? How how does death come, or how does life come from Jesus' death? And the answer is, because death was not the end for Jesus. Jesus did not stay dead. That was not his that was not his mission plan, right? He rose again. Because Jesus is and was not just a man, but Jesus is the God man, right? Made me think again, just thinking through uh, examples of mission and purposefulness and fruitfulness in church history. I thought of um, uh, this guy in church history, he's a, kind of an ancient church father by the name of Tertullian. You guys know this name? You've heard it? I see a nod. Tertullian, yeah. I see nods this way and this way. <laughs> uh, but Tertullian was a guy, he lived around the year, um, like AD, you know, like first century. So AD 179, we see that uh, a, uh, this guy, Tertullian, ancient church father, is uh, writing an apologetic for the faith. He's seeking to defend Christianity in this moment where there's lots of religious oppression uh, against Christians in the Roman Empire. And at one point, uh, writing about the persecution and even the martyrdom that a lot of his brothers and sisters in the faith were facing and experiencing, Tertullian writes this. And he said, I think, again, yeah, I have it on, on the screen. He says, we spring up in greater numbers the more we are mown, da- mown down by you, referring to the, the, uh, the Roman authorities. And he goes on and he says, the blood of Christians is the seed of new life. The blood of Christians is the seed of new life. Now, if what Tertullian is saying here is true, right? If Tertullian is right, that the spilled blood of of a Christian man or of a Christian woman was on some level this this fuel, this life-giving thing that ended up creating you know, more testimony and more spiritual life and more people coming to faith, then how much more is that true of the spilled blood of Jesus Christ? Right? Jesus Christ and his spilled blood, his death, is the epicenter of life coming into, breaking into our world. And Tertullian was seeing it on this kind of this little microcosm scale where people were, were faithfully following Jesus and lost their lives, sometimes maybe in, in the arena or the Colosseum. Yet how much more does that take us back to Jesus as the beginning of it all? This is the clarity that Jesus has about his own mission. He has clarity that it is through his own death that life would shoot up and shoot out and shoot out to all the ends of the earth. So as it pertains to this fruitful mission, then, just to recap, we've done done two already, right? So we see the challenge of Jesus to his own disciples to release and to surrender. We see the clarity of Jesus regarding his own purpose and his own calling, his own mission to die that life might spring forth. Thirdly now, both of these things together kind of lead us to what we started with at the top, the first thing I mentioned, which is the curiosity we see among 
these Greeks who are coming to Jesus in the text. We see this especially in verses 19 through 22 of the verses that we read. And there's some interesting things to note about this interaction here that we see uh, about the Greeks and their coming. So I'll just kind of bullet point a few things for us here about what is going on here with the Greeks and their curiosity. In verse 20, we see that these Greeks are seeking to participate in the Passover. They're coming because of the feast. They're coming to Jerusalem, which tells us that these are people who are probably, uh, in biblical terms, what the scriptures refer to as God-fearers. These are, these are people who are not themselves Jewish. They're, they're Greeks, they're Gentiles from various places and all kinds of different addresses. And yet, for some reason, they're attracted to the Jewish way of life. They're attracted to uh, the God of Israel and the, the one true God, and they know a little bit about him, and they're being drawn to him. And so that's, that's spurring this curiosity. They want to know more, and they think, hey, this Jesus guy, he's a, he's a Jew. He's, he's causing a stir. Let's see if we can get close to him, learn more, find out more. Secondly, verse 21 <laughs> kind of to that exact point, we see these Greeks looking for people who are close to Jesus, who are kind of like them, that can maybe be like they're in to get to Jesus. In other words, the, these outsiders, these foreigners, are looking for common ground with the disciples so that they can get closer to Jesus, so that they can get into conversation with him, so that they can know him better. This is good, right? Jesus is drawing people in. Jesus is a man, like he's, he's the most interesting man in the world, right? Whoever lived, people are drawn to him. It's part of mission, how it happens. Thirdly, finally, so they're looking for common ground. Lastly, verses 22 and 23, we see that even though these Greeks are, uh, you know, it seems to me like they're kind of trying to play a game of telephone here, right? Because they, they pull in Philip, right? Again, I mean, going back to the common ground thing, they connect with Philip. I should have said this a moment ago. But the reason they connect with Philip, because Philip is actually not a Jewish name. It's actually a name that is of Greek origin. So they think, hey, this guy Philip, that's a name we recognize. And he's from Bethsaida. And that's, that's close to where, you know, probably, that's close to where we're from. And so... So they they're kind of play this game of telephone. The, the, these, uh, these Greeks, they say, hey, Philip. And then Philip grabs Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip go together to Jesus. And they say, hey, these, you know, Jesus, these Greeks, these guys, they want to talk to you. Right? But the interesting thing about the text as we see it is that it, the text never seems to indicate that Jesus gives them an audience. The, we don't read anywhere that Jesus actually directly interacts with these, these Gentiles, these Greeks who are seeking him. Interesting, And yet, I think in a, a really interesting way, it seems to me that this moment of Greek curiosity seeking Jesus is kind of like this moment of a fuse being lit for Jesus in his own mind as he's thinking about his own mission and his ministry and his life. Because all of the sudden, you know, it's interesting. If you look at the whole Gospel of John, there's all of these moments where things are happening and... Jesus says, you know, like, there's this temptation for Jesus to, like, just come out and be like, okay, this is who I am. But, but time and again, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. 
Like, my time has not yet come. I'm, I'm not going to be all out, right? I'm still going to be hold myself back. I'm going to hold it back. But all of a sudden, these Greeks coming to Jesus suddenly becomes this trigger moment. And for the first time, Jesus says, my hour has come, right? The time is now, right? Up until this moment, it was always no. But now, all of a sudden, Jesus says, where is it? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 23. So, wh- why is this triggering? Right? Why, does this, why is this suddenly this moment that causes this shift? And I think it's because it's because of these guys, these Greeks, these outsiders, these foreigners who are coming to Jesus. And Jesus knows that his primary mission, first and foremost, is to, as he says, the lost sheep of Israel. His calling, his mission is not to the Greeks. It's not to the Gentiles, first and foremost. But ultimately, Jesus knows that his, his calling is to seek and to save the lost. And there are the lost among the Jews, and there are the lost among the Greeks and the Gentiles. So this means that it is time, as the, as the Gentiles or the Greeks are seeking Jesus, it is time for Jesus to go to the cross. Because is it only through the cross that Jesus then can then welcome everyone and say, hey, on account of my death, on account of my righteousness, come, come in. You're all welcome. In the Gospel of John, this is referred to again and again as his glorification. Jesus going to the cross is his moment of, of glory. Because again, we know that that's not the end of the story for Jesus. And so we kind of come full circle, right? The coming of these, these curious Greeks leads to this kind of fuse lighting moment of clarity for Jesus going, hey, this is it. And then Jesus turns around and challenges his disciples about the pattern of their own lives and says, hey, your pattern of life is going to be following in my pattern as well. There's going to be in your life this call to release and surrender just as there was in mine. And ultimately, zooming back and kind of zooming out, we know that this mission for Jesus was indeed very fruitful. One of the ways that we know that Jesus' mission was successful and was fruitful is that we are sitting here today, right? We are some of the fruit that was born of Jesus' mission, of his going to the cross and coming again, rising again. If you today have faith in Jesus as your Savior, part of what that means is that Jesus himself went into the earth like that grain of wheat for you. And, and he did not go into the earth as a grain of wheat for you in vain. It is born fruit. Many of you will be familiar, I'm sure, with uh, the reflection of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, where Bonhoeffer writes that when Christ calls a man, he calls him or bids him come and die. And ironically, that call to die is also the ignition point of fruitful mission. We come and die and new life springs forth. And we get to participate with Jesus in the ongoing mission that he's unfolding in the world.
If we're honest, if I'm honest, you know, we don't, we don't want that, right? We don't want to come and die. We don't like the release. If, if we had our way, it would be constant fruit. For me, my ministry, my mission, for, for the ministries and the missionaries that I support, it would be constant fruit. It would be constant flourishing, growth, right? It wouldn't be this path of death and suffering. But in the logic of the kingdom, it is through the death and the dying that the fruit and the life comes. Closing thought here for us, just to wrap us up, is uh, for us to think about, and for me as well, as I was thinking about it this week, spend some time this week thinking about, praying about, if there is anything in your life that the Lord might be calling you to surrender and to release for the sake of a more fruitful engagement in the mission of God. Could be something related to how you're spending your time and your schedule that you're being called to release and to surrender. Could be something related to your finances and money to support more missionaries or mission work or go yourself, right? It could be where you live and where you're spending your time physically and where you, where you work, your vocation. I encourage you to think and pray about these things as we are a people on mission, called and welcomed in to join the Lord in his fruitful mission that is continuing to unfold in the world. Because that's the guarantee, right? At the end of the day, the mission will continue to be fruitful. It will continue to be successful in exactly the way that the Lord wants it to be. And our privilege is that we get to join him in that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for this opportunity to reflect on your word. And Lord, just blitzing through John, it feels like a lot. And yet, Lord, I'm grateful for the simplicity of the gospel, the beauty of your welcome, and God, the the significant uh, weight and beauty we have of joining you in your work. Lord, we know you don't need us, but you delight to use us. Thank you, God. We, We pray that you continue that in Jesus' name. Amen.